0: podcast ain't played nobody your college football marriage of numbers and words this is bill Connolly, and if i'm introducing the podcast that means godfrey's out um and i decide he, he is once again on on project x related duty that is he says that is wrapping up we'll see for all we know he's going to be out like the next month but i think it'll only be a week uh to take his place i decided to basically create kind of a theme uh PAP and theme show of sorts uh, we're we're, we're going to talk draft. We're not going to only talk draft today, but we're going to talk a decent amount of, of NFL draft stuff. And I'm not only doing this because Godfrey's out. there for I can say what I want to say about Josh Allen <laughs> uh, and not feel bad about saying it in front of the Wyoming fan. But uh, anyway, I, I am joined today by two guest hosts, and I, I'm very excited to have them both on. First of all, uh, we've got SB Nation's Alex Kirshner. I believe Alex has was last on, what, before the season, if I remember right, some August or something. I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. And so he was the last one uh, to, to go on before Godfrey went uh, was lost to Project X. And so we circled through the rest of them. And now we're back around to Alex. Uh, I like the way that works. I, I like not having to think about it, like, who should we invite? Oh, I'll just put the you know, who's, who's next. It works out pretty well. But I, uh, I'm excited about having Alex on. We'll try not to talk too much about uh, the Pirates and Pittsburgh sandwiches. Uh, and then also uh, the the non-SB Nation college football team guest. Uh, he, he goes by four at Four Verts on Twitter. Uh, he spoke to a bunch of nerds at Sloan, and I'll talk to him about that here in a second as well. Uh, this is Charles McDonald making his PAPN debut. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. I mean, I'm trapped inside with all this snow that's ravaging the East Coast about a week away from April. But besides that, <laughs> <laughs> nothing to complain about.
0: Yeah, it's it's technically spring, so happy spring. Um, uh, is it actually spring? No, I think tomorrow. I don't know. It, tomorrow, I think. Yeah, it was like two days ago or oh, yesterday. I don't know. This is as we record on Wednesday. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, wh- whatever. Um, so <laughs> yeah, we are a month or so away from the NFL draft. Uh, so naturally, the first topic I'm going to bring up is Eastern Michigan football. Um. Uh, you know, because this is still PAPN, I guess. Uh, so before we get into the draft stuff and the questions, we got some really good questions, uh, some some less good ones too, but some pretty good questions here uh, to address from our Twitter followers. Um, I, 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 t- this morning's preview is uh, I'm still very, very much in the Mac portion of the uh, uh, the 2018 season, pre- season preview series. Uh, and the, today's topic was Eastern Michigan. Now, the first thing about Eastern Michigan that I found fascinating, just trying to keep up with them last year, since they were kind of the PAPN team of the year two years ago, um, they figured out a bunch of different ways to lose heartbreaking games. And I think that's kind of mean myself. You got a team who's been to one bowl in 30 years, who's been decent once in 30 years. Uh, and then they have probably their best team since about 1987. And you have them lose, let's see, three overtime games. Uh, they, to avoid overtime, they scored late against army, went for two in the wind, didn't get it. Uh, they blew a bunch of chances through two late interceptions in Kentucky territory, lost to Kentucky. Uh, they blew some chances, missed an early field goal through another late pick and lost to Toledo at Toledo, a very good Toledo. Uh, they lost six games in a row by a combined 22 points, uh, and therefore finished five and seven, despite actually improving from a numbers perspective from the year before. So in theory, that's great. You know, this year they can just flip that luck around and they'll go nine and three and it'll even out. But the most interesting thing, really, anytime you talk about Eastern Michigan is uh, money and fan support. And so uh, yesterday, before uh, this preview went up, they cut a bunch of sports, four sports, including wrestling, which they're usually at least decent at, plus softball, I think, swimming and diving. Um and the response part now this part part of this came from the Detroit Free Press, uh, which I've I've read a few different anti EMU kind of things from. Uh, you know I, I think they uh, according to a lot of the local media they probably should have dropped football about 20 years ago, but they didn't. And now they are had they've had their best two teams in a long time. They don't really have anything to show for it, but they've shown just enough promise that maybe they've staved off whatever potential demons were coming their way and they were able to, to keep football. Uh, I think they had to lose a grad assistant or something like that, but otherwise they're going to keep floating right along. Chris Creighton's job is not going to disappear, but it's not going to get any easier. Um, but really just in general, because again, this is PAPN and this is what we talk about. um, Uh, there's always an interesting aspect here of just like the programs that are, are trying as hard as they can to compete at football, even though they just don't have the wherewithal to do it. One of the quotes, and again, this is probably cherry picking a little bit, but one of the quotes in that Detroit free press piece, um, let's see where, It was at the very bottom. It was a a woman from Ypsilanti who has a daughter at Eastern Michigan. She says, it seems to me you'd want to reward and protect the programs that are doing well, like softball and and wrestling and whatnot. Uh, I don't understand why they don't drop down a notch or two and play in the same division as Grand Valley State does. They do well. They win championships. Eastern Eastern's never going to win a national championship of football. It just doesn't make sense. now." they're not going to win a national championship in wrestling or or softball or whatever either, but they were better. And, and there is this just kind of this overlying kind of thing about like, why are some of the schools at the top level at the top level? Like, you know, my, my, my good friend, my, uh, you know, my beloved New Mexico state Aggies, um, lost their Sunbelt spot and are going to remain as independents in FBS, even though it means like playing Liberty twice a year. Liberty came up to FBS to be an independent uh, for whatever reason. So my question here, and it it is kind of just a very broad question here, but what, like, where do we see this going? Like, are, are these schools going to continue to fight and scrape and 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 cut a bunch of other sports in the name of keeping football just in case they make the right hire and and they explode and they win conference titles everything's great or do do we eventually kind of reach a point where more teams obviously nobody wants to pull an Idaho and jump down but eventually there might not be a choice in the matter where where do we see this going either one of you can uh, jump in
2: I think EMU is going to stay stay EMU Uh, I don't expect that Uh, And this is kind of just a broad thought about athletic directors and university administrators. Uh, Idaho laudably made the right decision to go to FCS to say, we can't hack it at this level uh, with the big boys, and we can't be an FBS program anymore. Uh, You kind of have to eat a little bit of pride to do that. And I don't, in general, think that college administrators, particularly college athletic administrators, are good at it. I think that EMU could probably look at what wmu did a couple of years ago and think that oh hey you know we could we could make that higher we could maybe be you know a, a mac dark horse one year even though i think they've won the mac one time in history uh in like 1987 if yeah, not. They've, had, they've had literally one truly yeah. good team ever yeah um but it's weird I, I, every time you know you mentioned ypsilanti and i, I think of emu and i'm like i, I think that they're like this like remote destination like nestled in like the northernmost part of michigan where they could never get talent i mean they're not they're like right by detroit and ann arbor in theory you know they they are not that far from the same midwestern recruiting turf that uh teams like cincinnati and wmu and niu have used to put together some pretty good teams so they could see that and think they could do it and other than the fact that they are emu i can't think of a reason that they couldn't
0: no, that's always been the interesting thing about, to me just about the Mac in general is, I mean, we've got 12 extremely similar teams, but there's still a, a difference in investment. And that's always been EMU's problem. Um, you know, they are just like they're like nine miles from Ann Arbor or something like that. They're basically a suburb. Um, and so in theory, you would think that could be kind of, a, you know, my favorite team. When I went to a Bowling Green game, uh, Missouri at Bowling Green back in like 2 I think. Um they're like everybody like the tailgates outside. They were like big Ohio State flags and then smaller rolling green flags. And for whatever reason, and, and I mean, they've they've benefited a lot from being kind of your second choice team that really hasn't ever applied to EMU. The Michigan bubble does not apply to Mac schools. Apparently, uh, a Michigan man does not uh, deign to root for any other team. But um no i I just for whatever reason some schools eastern michigan can't stay it's always an uphill battle but like toledo's been good for most of the last what 20 to 30 years um and, and maybe it just comes down to hires because you know you make a good hire and then you win and then you uh get more you get more money from ticket sales and you get on tv more and then you, you're more able to make another good hire but it's just always yeah the, something has held them back and chris creighton has steered that ship about as well as anybody possibly could and we'll see a how, how much how much longer he can do it or if it becomes like a hard jobs remain hard um charles you got any hot eastern michigan takes
1: uh, The only Eastern Michigan take I have is they were a pretty good team to start an offensive coordinator with on um, NCAA 14 because they had a quarterback who could run. So if you like wanted to pick an offensive system that maybe use like if you want to run Oregon system at EMU, that was a good place to start if you want to start like a one star school. so. But besides that, no, I haven't watched EMU football on TV ever, I don't think.
0: Trying to remember the name of that good mobile. Reginald Bell, I think was the name of that, that mobile quarterback. Yeah, something something like right. that. Like
1: he, he was pretty fun to start off with. Like if you needed a, a playable quarterback at a one-star school.
0: QB number eleven or whatever he was. Um all right. That was that was my one preview related item. So far this week I've gotten through Buffalo on Monday, Western Michigan on Tuesday, EMU on Wednesday. I, I maintain what I was saying last week on this show in that um it seems like the Mac kind of have it has its act together a little bit this year more than others in that, like, aside from Kent State and maybe Ball State, which just got detonated by injuries, like, everybody seems to know what they're doing and know how they're going to try to win games. And, and so what that means is basically – a ton of close games. EMU lost them all. Miami, Ohio lost them all. Akron won them all. And and that makes all the difference in the standings. But a lot of teams seem to know what they're doing this year. And that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's all you can ask for, really, is make good hires and and uh, kind of create your own trajectory. But anyway, let's move on to uh, the theme of the show, which in this case is uh, hashtag ask PAPN NFL draft, whatever hashtag we want to create there. Uh, I got a lot of... Good questions here, but let's just start off um, with with this uh, pretty overriding or uh, major question that everybody seems to be asking: Would you, uh, Charles? You can go first. Would you use the number one pick in the
1: NFL draft on a running back? No, uh, I don't. And I guess if you want to look at this through the lens of the Browns, I don't even think I would use the, like the fourth pick on a running back yeah. either. Uh, just because. You know, I think that it's kind of overblown that you can find a running back anywhere in the draft. You know, you can just find someone who's going to get a thousand yards. But I, I do think that you can find plenty of capable backs uh, in day two and day three. And just when you look at how the NFL is kind of valuing these guys, like their contract hits are about as much as kickers right now so you're essentially you're essentially taking someone who the nfl views as valuable as a kicker with the first pick in the draft which maybe if you're the raiders in 2001 which when they picked sebastian janikowski with the 11th pick maybe that makes sense for you but i don't know in today's nfl if you look at like hell the the eagles they were able to win the super bowl with a group of guys uh and i think the highest drafted player there was jay ajay and he was a fourth round pick you got contributions by Corey Clement and uh, LeGarrette Blount who are both undrafted uh it just doesn't really make sense to kind of spend that much money or that kind of resource on a running back when teams are finding useful guys everywhere and it's not like the mid-2000s or the late 90s NFL where you kind of need that bell cow guy who's going to take 350 carries and get 1600 yards you really just need someone who can come in and do a specific role so i don't really understand why barkley would be the number one pick uh just because the browns haven't had a quarterback since they moved back except like one year of Derek anderson where he made the pro bowl which is kind of bizarre but uh yeah don't don't take saquon barkley with the number one pick even though he's a freakishly talented player
0: Yeah, this is a really weird draft. I was trying to figure out exactly why it feels so weird to me uh, and how we've, among other things, talked to ourselves, like, quarterback bonanza this year. I think it's just because there are no other storylines because most of, like, most of the the, the – at least for me the most of the players who are, are probably the best in the draft are at positions you don't take number one so running back uh with Saquon um safety with Mika Fitzpatrick or Derwin James uh offensive guard with Quentin Nelson at uh, Roquan Smith of course uh inside linebacker not only that but an uh, you know a, a potentially undersized inside linebacker and so like those are the, the the guys I would want on my team the most you don't pick any of those with number one pick because you know just you know, because that's not what you do in, in terms of, you know, heuristics and whatnot. But um, I at least understand when it comes to Saquon, because he is really, really explosive. And because he, um, because there isn't an obvious choice, if you, if you don't buy into the fact that the quarter, if you don't buy into the idea that the quarterbacks are amazing here, then there's really nobody left to take. So I understand the dilemma still wouldn't do it though. Um, for a piece I'm going to write here in a couple months or a couple of weeks, hopefully, uh, this is giving some information away, but this is, a, you know, a, an Easter egg for those who listen to the podcast and they'll just read the content on the on the website. Um, so I have this uh, stack called marginal efficiency, which basically takes your success rate or takes your success rate in different situations, looks at down distance and yard line and basically says your success rate based on these carries or passes or whatever, on average, would have been this and yours was this. Um, and so for NFL backs from 2010 to 2017, the marginal efficiency for, for first round, uh, running backs, there were 12 of them, uh, with like a minimum X number of carries was minus 6.4%. Now, part of that is because it, I, I don't differentiate between what run and pass and, and running in the NFL is impossible. And I don't understand why anybody would run the ball at all at this point, um, but it was minus -6.4% for first rounders, -6.7 for second rounders, -5.8 for third, 5 for fourth, -6.5 for fifth, -6.5 for sixth. They're the same. Like every no matter what round you draft a running back in, they end up performing basically the same. And so even if you believe that Saquon Barkley is amazing, is he that much more amazing? His stats suggest he's he's really good, but not a standout like not a, a ridiculous one time once in a lifetime standout and so i love saquon barkley and i hope he he rushes for a billion yards but i can't talk myself into him being a number one no. and
1: if you want someone who can really run the ball while also giving you maybe some passing on the side lamar jackson quietly was the sixth leading rusher in the nation last year and if uh, you yeah. take away uh, okay first of all i have a question for you why are we still counting sacks as like minus rushing yards in college football Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. What are we doing there? <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I, I I, don't. First of all, like everything I do, I don't do that. But um, I mean, I think it's just because people you see like zero for zero for minus seven yards in your brain malfunctions. And so they just they can't they can't stomach the thought of, of having like negative passing yards with no passes or something. I, I don't know. It doesn't sound like cowards. It just it. <laughs> hey and again hey i, I you know they, they're cowards. i'm not but um but no it's crazy it's absolutely crazy and it, and it really messes with you although in this case i love it because lamar jackson was where he was on that list including right. sacks and he got hit a he got to hit a decent amount so that's that's pretty freaking
1: so, and incredible. i think if you take away his sacks uh and like the attempts that come with those he had a better rushing year than he did in, in his heisman season which is it just kind of yeah, because he was so explosive that year too and I don't I, you know I, I think if you want the explosive plays on the ground and you're picking at the top of the draft you know I, I mean I, I'm a big Lamar Jackson guy but I, I think if you're going to take someone a running back that high I, I think Saquon has a little bit more bust factor not you know not that he's going to bust but he's his game has a little bit more boomer bust style to it than guys yes. like Ezekiel yes. Elliott or Todd Gurley does uh when you just look at you know the best running backs to come out recently uh it, it's just it's just kind of weird that you know people are kind of pushing him to go top three and i personally i i, I can uh i can co- i can sign myself off on the four quarterbacks that i would take before saquon barkley if i needed a quarterback this year so you know it, it's just it's just we we kind of do this every year and i think You know, Dallas is seeing that maybe they would have rather had Jalen Ramsey or someone else in in that range when they picked uh, Ezekiel Elliott. But, uh, yeah, Saquon is absolutely a tremendous player. He's going to go high, no doubt.
0: Yeah, there's no, I mean, that, that part is set in stone. I did find this interesting though. Here's um career rushing success rate. Success rate is like my go-to for everything at this point for, for the, like the major prospects. So, so Saquon was at 44.3%, basically out of the top 30 or so, he's right in the middle, which is, which is what I expected. His explosiveness was better than anybody's other than Jalen's or excuse me, not um, be, uh, Rashad Penny or maybe Josh Adams. Yeah. Um, so I mean his and of course he has the receiving ability that I wasn't looking at here he's a very good receiver <clears throat> so I mean he he's a very good prospect but he was middle of the road in terms of efficiency and that carries over a lot better than explosiveness does uh, your top uh in terms of rushing success rate your top prospects Jalen Samuels from NC State was a 51.9 percent he they kind of almost overthought how they used him um in that they you know he was a he was an h back he was a tailback he was a slot receiver he was a tight end and all this and it was kind of useful but he was he was a much better just plain old running back and they probably didn't use him as that enough Um, But he was at 52 percent. Royce Freeman at Oregon was at 49 percent. You can get him in the later rounds. Uh, Darius Geis was at 48 percent. You can't get him in the later rounds, but it was still uh, very, very high. Cameron Petway was at 47.7. Daryl Williams from LSU. You can get really late. And he was 47.7. Bo Scarborough was actually higher than I thought. He was at 47.6. Ryan Nall from Oregon State uh, did not test well in the speed factor, if I remember correctly, uh, but he was at 47%. Carry on Johnson, 47. Jordan Scarlett, if you're looking for another complete and total out of left field pick, he was at 47% on a bad Florida team. So, or bad Florida Scarlett, offense. Scarlett, isn't
1: this draft class? I wasn't even aware of that.
0: I believe so. I, I, maybe he's like a supplemental guy, but I'm pretty sure he's not returning to
1: Florida. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, I would uh, assume no. the same thing. But you know, I, I think you know, just kind of touching on Scarlett a little bit. I always thought when I watched him, he was he looked like an NFL back for sure. And I, I think when you look at this class, there's so many guys, and you didn't even hit on guys like Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle, who are at you know practicing at Georgia's pro day today. There's so many quality backs this year. And I think the trend is that you're going to see a lot more quality backs just in that day two, day three range. And like you said earlier, they're going to produce about, you know, maybe it won't be as flashy as Saquon, but a lot of these guys will end up producing fairly similar to him or have years that are similar to Saquon in the NFL. So I I just don't really get why you would pop that guy at one or in the top five or even in the top 10, really, when you can get so many guys who are going to give you, like the same output production on day two and day three.
2: Right. I think that Barkley too, one of the discussion points about him for years at Penn state was that he was doing it all despite this terrible, like absolute soup strainer of an offensive line. (laughs) And I think that was progressively less and less true, especially over his last two years there. Um, You know, he, he was, he has a better highlight reel than anybody. He's absolutely a special player. Uh, but it is true that I think probably through some fault of his own, not, not that he um, had everything pervert around him, but uh, he wasn't always the most efficient running back, as you've, you've just noted. And um, I think Penn State fans in particular tend to pin that more on his line than is right. probably probably fair, especially given that he had Trace McSorley and Mike Gesicki and and all of these weapons around him. So great yeah. player, but, but I also would not take him that high.
0: Yeah. And, and on the other side, you'll hear a lot of people say he dances too much. You know, he doesn't, um, you know, he didn't give his lion a chance to block uh, because he was already changing direction and all that. In the end, I think that was almost overblown too because I remember what was it? The Northwestern game there, like that, that was the narrative coming in that the announcers had chosen. And there were a couple of times where they would like show a replay and see, see, he's making his move too early on a play where he was absolutely not making his move too early or he was about to get hit as he took the handoff. So then he, of course, made a move, Um, but it is some combination. His line wasn't uh, Ezekiel Elliott's line or, uh, or this year, at least, uh, you know, Nick Chubb or Sony Michelle's line. It it was not quite at that standard, but he probably improvises a bit too much. Sometimes and doesn't just take three yards when he can. So um,
1: yeah. I also think an interesting bit with Saquon is I think he knows that he's the best athlete on the field at all times. All right. Right. So uh, he, he's going to take a little bit more risks than he probably should. And uh, I, I think that that's something he'll learn pretty quickly. He's not going to fly in the NFL when you got running backs, when you got linebackers that can run just as fast as he can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And to me, to me, in the end, this comes down to like, what are you looking for? Because um, I think he's probably got the best odds of being the most successful back. Darius guys is going to have a very good opportunity to, uh, to claim that too. And plenty of others that were, were you know, that are just completely random. Um, but he's very, very good. He's probably, he might be the safest bet besides guys. And so fine. Um, take him as the first running back off the board is just, yeah. In, in 2018, can like, I, I don't I don't know where I would personally even uh, stand out number one uh, I don't know at what point I would be willing to take a standout number one running back I think my answer for, basically
2: for everything draft related is trade down yeah if they can pull it off again they should absolutely trade down and Charles and I were joking about this I ran into Charles at the uh, the combine and one of the things that I thought was was fun was when uh, the new Browns GM, Dorsey, is sitting there and he fields several questions in a row that are like, if the right offer were there, would you trade down for number one pick? And I, you know, no, if the right offer were there, I, I definitely would not trade down. I wouldn't want more picks. Well,
0: <laughs> and right, as we saw, I mean, who is a uh, that traded up the other day there, there will always be somebody willing to go to, to get stupid and trade up like that. That doesn't seem like it's a problem. Um, and, but yeah, like I can't When the best players are your Quentin Nelson who, who I guess they can probably get at number four um, probably. Uh, and then you can, you know, obviously offense was the Browns bigger problem, but if you can trade down and get some of the actual best players in the draft, um, it, it, because, because somebody is willing to overpay for either a, a risky quarterback number one or risky quarterback number two or for Barkley or whoever. Yeah, my God, do, do, please do that uh, just for the
2: sake of, of general sanity. It's so Browns that they have the number one and number four pick in the draft and the two best players in the draft are a freaking running back and an offensive guard. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I did, like somebody pointed out the other day, though, that, you know, all this talk about quarterback and, of course, it's a risk, of and you, but you have to have one and all this. Somebody said, well, just pick four of them then. Use four of your picks on a quarterback and, and then you'd probably be uh, in pretty good shape. I doubt anybody will do that. Um, all right. Let's hop over to questions. So... Um, <laughs> I have, this is not a draft question, and I'm going to start with it because I'm terrible at, at show flow, but I can't help it. Um, our friend, where did it go? I already lost it. Our friend, <laughs> I'm really good at this. Our friend Brian Mann uh, at bman underscore 2017. I can't remember if you've talked about it, but can you acknowledge the pain that is the end of Rutgers' schedule? So Rutgers actually got better last year, <clears throat> uh, believe it or not. And they got up to, I think, four wins overall. They also play in the Big Ten East, uh, which is uh, like being uh, Rutgers in the SEC West, uh, except they beat Arkansas a couple years ago. But they end of their schedule, so they start off with Texas State, uh, which is fine um they, they they then in week two this isn't just the end of schedule this is almost all of it week two they go at ohio state so just right off the bat they get ohio state early um they play kansas but it is in lawrence which you know they're probably good enough to win that game uh but it is in lawrence they get buffalo at home i i just talked up buffalo on monday uh, Indiana and Illinois at home. So great. So four, what is that? Uh, five games or six games in, you've played four home games, three of them, four of them, all four winnable, plus a winnable road game at Kansas. So maybe things break right and you're five and one heading into mid October, which at Rutgers would be amazing. A um, recent Rutgers, anyway. Uh, the rest of the schedule at Maryland, uh, you know, maybe about equal team, but it's in College Park. Uh, Northwestern at home and then uh, a week off. November at Wisconsin. Michigan at home, Penn State at home at Michigan State now, Ohio State's not in there, that would be even more painful, but yeah, so win your game's early, um, beat Northwestern, get to six wins, and then
2: just uh, you know st- save all your players for the bowl game. I think is the basic gist here yeah, i'm not sure uh've Maryland and Rutgers have kind of operated in parallel, I feel like they've yeah. had similar schedules in the last couple of years where. They've both like been allowed to win a couple of early games in that division <laughs> where they're silver matched. And then at the end of the year, the only win that either of them gets is over the other on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And this year, they won't even get that.
0: Um at A W Mueller, future Pitt head coach, on uh, is his handle on Twitter. Um, why do players who weren't even good in college get so many NFL opportunities? For example, Bart Houston couldn't hold down the Wisconsin starting job, but he was in training camp with the Steelers. Now, training camp is whatever. Like, just yeah. in- invite warm bodies to training camp. So I'm not going to um, waste too much time on that. But you guys were both at the combine. I'm going to I'm going to twist this que- question around to fit my own needs. Uh, you guys were at the combine, which, for a lot of NFL people, almost seems like the beginning of the draft evaluation process. <clears throat> um, you know, it, it does seem like a, when you're when you're following along on Twitter, reading what certain guys write, it really is like they 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 eliminate stats entirely, <clears throat> and you your NFL job interview, so to speak, begins with you know your broad jump or or your forty or your interview or whatever, um, but. <sighs> Being there in person, like how much does it sway you when you get into that world of kind of evaluating these guys in person? How much and and you know throwing against uh, traffic cones or, or receivers you've never thrown to before? How much does it start to sway you when you see one guy who 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 can physically impress uh, in a way that a guy who is extremely productive in college, for instance, could not?
1: For me personally, not at all. I mean, I don't know. You know, if, if you've watched these guys before the combine i try to watch you know at least like two games of some of the guys i want to pay attention to at the combine then you know you shouldn't know for the most part what you're getting uh as an athlete when you watch them so you know when vita vea runs that 5-1 at three at hundred <laughs> forty seven pounds like yeah that's outrageous and ridiculous and silly and he hit i think over like almost 40 uh wrap some bench press, but like we all knew that he was strong and he was fast. Like that shouldn't really change your opinion at all. If you already knew that going in. Yeah. And I
0: mean, it, it it's always seemed to me like it's not the, the combine is the last step. Uh, or should be, um, you know, if, if there's a guy, if there's a quarterback who maybe is uh pretty short or doesn't seem to have a very good uh, accuracy on the deep balls or whatever, we know what he could, we know what he can do. We know what he has to to offer from a statistical standpoint. We know what kind of passes he is good at. And maybe you use that as a chance to see, you know, the, this, this one little area of difficulty, Lamar Jackson with drops, for instance, let's uh, you know, let's, how does he, how do guys catch his balls? Is it, is it, was it his receivers really being bad uh was it you know it it seems like that's a chance to answer one final question we don't know about this uh this offensive lineman's strength we see that his uh, technique is really good uh we see that he didn't give up a lot of sacks but how uh does he measure up from a pure strength standpoint you know those are those are things we can use the combine for i know um What was his name? Pat Kerwin, the guy who wrote the Take Your Eye Off the Ball book a few years ago, uh, talked talked about, uh, what did he call it, explosion score or something like that, where he's looking at like broad jump and vertical and had uh, a bench or something like that. And and you add those up, and guys who are over like 70 or something in those three combined, uh, those are the physically explosive guys who are more likely to make it. And then he pointed out a couple like draft busts who had the stats, but then were only like 52 in explosion score, and therefore, you know, um, and, and that's uh, that, it makes perfect sense to use it in that way. Uh, but it does it it constantly I think it just comes down to the fact that I'm a college football person and I, it, it almost like offends me to watch these people uh, who have big followings and, and proclaim to like the game of football uh, display so broadly that they, they they go out of their way not to watch uh, the second best version of the sport uh, and a version that has a lot of very fun aspects to it. But that's just my own personal preferences, I think.
2: And I think with the quarterback specifically, you know, you can take what you want from the 40 and the broad and the bench. Uh, I remember when Josh Allen's throwing an Indy and I was not um, in the stadium. I was over in the media workroom and Josh Allen throws these deep balls on air and everyone's just ooing and aing and then you see all these people tweeting about just wow what look at that that whistle the way the ball just flies out of his <laughs> hand like that, it just what what unbelievable arm strength you know you can really see why NFL scouts are salivating over this guy and i'm like folks i mean like yes w- you know we we already figured that he could like throw the ball pretty far um but how you could purport to glean anything from um a quarterback throwing on air or a receiver catching on air, um, short of the receiver just not being able to catch on air, which would be a problem, um, or the quarterback not being able to throw the ball anywhere near him on air. I'm just not sure how you could possibly uh, look at that and, and take anything significant. And I know that NFL, you know, actual NFL scouts and coaches, um, they have a finer eye for these things than any of us do in the media, or the vast majority of us do. Uh, but I still am, am deeply skeptical about it.
1: Hey, guys.
0: Hey, he's back. We, we lost trust for a minute, so we just kept right on talking without him. But you—you um, you actually made it just back in time, uh, just in the nick of time, I should say, because now we're talking about Josh Allen.
1: So, oh, perfect, my one true love. So the so the ball
0: whistled coming out of his hands at the combine. I hear just uh, just a gorgeous uh, cannon of a right arm. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure Jamarcus Russell could throw it 100 yards up from his knees. Uh, and, and that certainly got him very far in the draft Did not get him very far when it came to having to throw to actual receivers, um, who were covered by actual defenders. But yeah, I really do. <sighs> the Allen thing. Okay. So it was thir- 16 for 32 with five picks against Nebraska in 2016, 2016, when he had a supposedly great, um, supporting cast it was seven for 18 against Colorado state. Uh, 14 for 31 with two picks in the Mac in the Mountain West title game. Uh, 17 for 32 with two picks against BYU in the, I believe that was the Holiday Bowl. I believe that was a very rainy Holiday Bowl, so we'll we'll cut him some slack on that one. Nine for 24 against Oregon with a pick. Uh, 23 for 40 with two picks against Iowa. Uh, nine for you ni- could take so many.
2: You could take so many group of five quarterbacks in this draft. Let's take Logan Woodside, for example, huh. who had better passer ratings, better yards per attempt in their games against power five teams like Woodside played Miami last year than Allen did even against the Mountain West. Just, just wanted just, to interject it, with that. It,
1: it just doesn't make any sense. Like, like none of this makes sense. Uh, just when you look at, if you want to look at it from a stats perspective, uh, so I have... Uh, like the big five quarterbacks, I guess, Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson, Josh Rosen, Sam Donald, Josh Allen, they're adjusting their yards per attempt for the regular season. So this is like before the bowl season got kicked off. Right. Uh, so Baker Mayfield was in terms of adjusting the yards per attempt, Baker Mayfield was like by far the best with 12.3. Lamar Jackson was second with 8.5. Uh, Sam Darnold was third with 7.9. Josh Rosen was fourth with 7.5. And then way off in the distance, fifth was Josh Rosen or Josh Allen with uh, 5.6, adjusting the yards per attempt. And, you know, I remember I saw a comparison between him and Ben Roethlisberger. Like, if you want to go back and look what Ben Roethlisberger did in college, I mean, there's a reason he was a Heisman candidate at uh miami ohio before he went to the nfl like he was absolutely lighting up the defense he played against and you know the thing with supporting cast that bothers me so much is dude you're playing against mountain west teams like if you're going to be the number one pick in the draft you need to be lighting these people up like week in and week out and you know if you want to just go back and watch that boise state game there's no way you can watch that game after watching what he did for his power five teams and what he did for San Diego state and like their games against him last year. And just say that this guy is a bonafide number one overall pick And and the, I think the comparison that pissed me off the most was comparing Josh Allen to Cam Newton. Like, dude, did you see, what, <laughs> did you see what Cam did at Auburn? Like Cam walked into uh, Tuscaloosa against a team where CJ Mosley was a backup linebacker for them, which is, Insane because he's one of the best starting linebackers in the NFL right now. And he went in there and just lit them up for like four touchdowns through the air. And, you know, that's what a number one pick is supposed to look like. You know, Ben Roethlisberger in college is what a number one pick is supposed to look like. It, and this just isn't it. And I feel like I just don't understand or I don't know how he could have really any success in the NFL because he didn't do it in college at a pretty low level compared to the like the 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 amount of talent that he's about to step into so yeah i I wish the luck wish best of luck for him but i just don't see how this could turn out well if he gets drafted in the top 10 where he's gonna be expected to start as a rookie
0: yeah this this really has been like the most incredible like i say something wild and i get attention and it makes me want to say something even wilder kind of thing and it, 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 it like i mean it's gotten obviously uh our friend I, I i'm i'm blanking on his name now the the bleacher report draft guy um, oh matt miller 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 yeah uh who, who was very who, who was on the josh allen in the top 10 bandwagon last year um you know, and, and for every bad game he would have, like with Miller or Mel Kiper or whoever, every single bad game they would have, they would just double down. And, and, and eventually, you know, you've quadrupled down or whatever. And suddenly uh, you're exponentially higher on a guy with every bad game he has. And it's just uh, I mean, I guess we know that that's how this whole thing works with takes and whatnot. But it was it's been mind blowing to watch it. So. A couple things here. Number one, um, Ben Roethlisberger. You pull up SportsReference.com. You can look at his game, his game to game stats at um, Miami of Ohio. He he did start three years and not two, um, and his third year was the one where he was the Heisman. So maybe you know, maybe Josh Allen returns next year, and this all changes. But um, his first two games as a starter came against number twelve Michigan and Iowa. Um, Number two, against Michigan, he was 18 for 35 with three picks and a 99 passer rating. That's the college passer rating where like 130 is is average. Uh, Against Iowa the next week, he was nine for 18 with uh, a couple of bombs, a couple of touchdowns, but also two picks. He was at 145 in that game. Uh, and then the rest of the time they you know, they win some games, whatever. That was his only um, power conference. Exp- oh, no, no, wait. Cincinnati was also a power conference team that year. I forgot. He was 25, 24, 25 for 264 uh, and out the immortal G- uh, Gino gaduli uh, at, at Cincinnati, there uh, in 2001. In 2002, he faces North Carolina. Has another pretty mediocre game. Uh, 16 for 33, uh, for 204 and a touchdown. First of all, he's showing that he's expl- he remains explosive throughout this. Um, but he uh, you know, doesn't always have great games. Then against uh, Iowa, the second time around, he's 33 for 51 for three forty-three and three touchdowns. Um, he just, he was, pro- he, he got a lot better against the power conference teams. Uh, and he absolutely positively torched the Mac, uh, to a ridiculous degree. He had proven 50 times more, uh, than, than, than Josh Allen had. Um, the other thing I will point out here. So I do have a, um, like i said probably tomorrow i've got a piece on quarterbacks and and what kind of stats to look at to figure out like what's the what can we glean statistically from um their college stats like what can we learn even if we can't learn everything can we learn something um and the one thing we can absolutely learn is that your ceiling is your college stats like that's you aren't going to exceed those uh, nobody i was looking at i found a sample this is basically 38 quarterbacks uh, drafted between let's see i have to there are a lot of qualifiers here drafted between 2010 and 2017 uh, there were 38 quarterbacks who uh, were drafted in that range and then also through at least 300 passes in the nfl so immediately there's always context here that filters out a lot of bad quarterbacks obviously um, or guys who got hurt or guys who just started or whatever um, in terms of college success rate uh josh the only two people uh that he is above with his 43.3 percent career success rate at wyoming that's career so it includes 2016 the only two players he's above out of that 38 man sample are tom savage and jake locker um he's below tj yates he's below mike glennon he's below jacoby Brissett. he's below ryan mallet um if you look at only his twenty sixteen success rate, he's at forty six point one that puts him three six ninth uh eleventh from the bottom just behind blaine Gabbert. um the uh, yeah stats i i you know I realize they're for losers <laughs> but <laughs> But this is basically like of these 38 guys, only three of them performed within three percent, three percentage points of their college success rate. So basically your ceiling is about like three percentage points lower uh, than than whatever you produced in college. That puts Josh Allen's ceiling somewhere around 40 to 41 percent It's Ryan Mallett. It's Ryan Mallett. It's TJ Yates. It's barely above Tom Savage and Jake Locker and Jacoby Brissett so far and Mike Glennon. Um, and that's maybe he is an outlier. Maybe he is, you know, the, his supporting cast was so uniquely bad or whatever. So maybe he is worth a pick. Sure. He's worth a pick, (laughs) not a top five pick, not a top 10 pick because you have to play those guys really quickly. And the only guys who had a kind of lesser success rates and ended up doing decent in the pros, like, uh, like Brock Osweiler for basically a season sat for two or three years first and learned. Um, and you draft a guy in the top 10, you're playing him almost immediately. And that's, that's, oh, that's just a nightmare. Don't
2: screw him over like that. Would you guys indulge me in in a quick game to this effect? Could you name, there have been 12 quarterbacks drafted from the, and this is a similar, a similar exercise, 12 quarterbacks drafted since 2000, uh, from the mid-major conferences or FCS in the first round. Can you name them? Roethlisberger. That's one. Um, Bortles. That's another. Uh Paxton. That's another. Patrick Ramsey, was he one? Oh yeah, that's another. He's not the only two lame boy either. Oh, that's right. Um Lostman, oh, uh, yeah. 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 And actually I can I'll pause you. The other ones are uh Flacco, Left David Carr, uh Wentz, Chad Pennington, and Alex Smith from his uh Utah days when they were uh not in the power conference as they are now and would tell any BYU fan who asked. <laughs> um <laughs> But the point of, of why I brought that up, uh, there are three uh, of these quarterbacks who had lower college career passer ratings than Josh Allen, uh, and using your career rating, again, is generous to Josh Allen because he was a lot better uh, in his uh, sophomore season than he was as a junior the only two who were worse actually there sorry there were three who were worse because Allen was at 137.7 uh two of them were patrick ramsey and jp lossman had worse college passer ratings uh and the other was paxton lynch uh who was basically the same and flacco was basically the same um group of five quarterbacks if they're gonna be good uh they have to really light it up in college roethlisberger did wentz did uh pennington and smith did and they've had decent you know they had or are having decent careers and uh, looks like a star um Andy Dalton, yep. Oh, I think yeah, and actually, I might have, I might have omitted Andy Dalton from this list. No, like TCU was he was, was second, probably he was
0: second rounder. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, there, oh, there we have it. Um, you know, to to be a Group of Five quarterback or a, a FCS quarterback and make it in the NFL, um, you know, you historically have to have been really good in college too. Um, this is a, a really similar kind of thought exercise to what Bill just put forward. But really, um, the guys in Josh Allen's neighborhood are JP Losman. Patrick Ramsey and Paxton Lynch um, and Flacco to some degree, who I think is a bit of an outlier. So there's no way of looking at this for me that, that does not lead me to a, a really dark, grim conclusion <laughs> about where this is going.
1: Yeah. And the thing with, with Josh Allen is it's funny that when these guys gets in the NFL and they flame out, you know, you can look back at like a Kyle Bowler and say, wow, well, of course that didn't work out. He was bad in college. You can look at a Blaine Gabbert, a Blaine Gabbert, uh, Jake Locker, Christian Ponder, all those guys that went after Cam Newton, who they said were better than Cam Newton in the 2011 draft. Uh, If you can look back at their college careers and say, wow, well, I mean, of course this didn't work out. Look how bad they were in college. But for some reason, when it comes to doing it in real time, like we have an opportunity to right now, people are, reluctant to do it but when you can look at it in the past and say well yeah kyler bullard he completed like 47 percent of his passes in college of of course he wasn't any good if you look at jake locker he barely had any yards per attempt he wasn't any good but i don't know why we can't do that in the real time which is what's always frustrating and, and odd to me
0: no i've i um locker is the best comparable uh quarterback to me just in that like I remember like I just started at football outsiders those couple of years before the 2010, uh, season. And you know, the, the draft type on locker was enormous from the start. And so then he would go out and he'd complete 52% in a season, <laughs> Um, and you know a lot of us who do look at the stat lines or look at the right stats or better stats thinking why why the hell is this guy like yeah great he's an athlete awesome he's not a quarterback why and, and it, like you end up just screaming into the void and and granted he was a projected number one and he ended up going whatever it was 10th or 12th um, but no he he was Josh Allen in that he could throw it a million miles he was a very he was a, a, a worst an above average athlete for a quarterback probably better than that uh, and he wasn't a quarterback he was then uh, you have to show that you're a quarterback before you get to the pros. Um, and, and as far as talking about top 10 guys who got screwed, Gav- I mean, I'm a Mizzou guy, so I, I've always felt bad for playing Gabber because <clears throat> when he – came out again at Outsiders. I think I was writing something with like Doug Farrar or somebody. Um, and he asked me about Gabbard. And I, I basically said like, the dude doesn't have pocket presence. Uh, he got snapped in half by Indomitian Sue uh, early in 2009. <laughs> um, and it completely messed up his clock as to when to uh, try to leave the pocket and when not. It wasn't like a, fi- uh, like a, a ter- I'm terrified kind of thing. It was just, his clock was, 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 was off. It was wrong. And so, um his arm was obviously his arm he's still throwing the the most amazing pass I've ever seen in my life just uh flinging it out of bounds about 85 yards downfield in a spring game um but you know his his limitations were obvious if he could figure out if he could get the clock reset then maybe there's something to be salvaged there uh, and maybe that's worth a reasonably high pick but i said at the time like redshirt him like don't let him like a team that the team that drafts him if they've got a decent veteran in front of him so where you can sit and learn and be coached for a year maybe that'll get him to where he needs to go. They had Byron Leftwich. The Jags selected him, whatever it was, eighth. They had Byron Leftwich, and I was thinking, perfect, this is great. The week before the season, they cut Leftwich. And he starts game one, uh, and he was screwed. He was done. He, he was toast from basically that point forward because your clock isn't going to get better uh, being the week one quarterback of the Jacksonville Jaguars in 2011. Um, and, and so that's, that's always been his, he still gets contracts because of his arm and because uh, like by all accounts, I remember at Missouri, at least he was a very good leader. Like everybody liked him. (laughs) Those are all good things. Uh, but his clock's never been right and it's never going to be right at this point.
1: Yeah. I I think we can safely say that Blaine Gabbert experiment has ended, but Hey, he's still getting the NFL checks. I think he's exactly, he just had like a workout with the Titans yesterday. So. Blaine Gabbard, by the way,
0: the second worst NFL. I, I looked at the first four years when I was comparing college to pro. I looked at the first four years. So basically your first contract, the two lowest success rates of anybody in this 300 pass sample, Jimmy Clausen was at 30.4% success rate, which is amazing. He got 500 passes in the NFL. Uh, did nothing with any of them. Uh, the second worst, uh, just ahead of, of what Deshaun Kaiser did last year, was Blaine Gabbard at 32.9%. So Quarterback in position it's quarterback is a hard position and don't play these guys before they're ready. It's just not going to work out. They're probably, they're either going to get to sacked a million times like David Carr, or they're just never going to be able to get out of their bad habits. uh, If you don't give them a chance to, ah, more questions. Let's see what else we got here. Um, and obviously you guys were in on that too. So if you see one jump in, uh, let's see how, okay. Here's uh Lucas Bloss at Lucas Bloss 22. How do or should NFL teams consider the level of college football a player was at P5, G5, or FCS when looking at their pro potential? Um, what's funny is, so this, this little sample of quarterbacks, we were talking about um, P5 versus G5 and all that <clears throat> with this sample of quarterbacks, the guys who came from G5s, their, their college stats carried over exactly the same as the guys in p fives. Now, it's a tiny sample, so I'm not going to read too much into that. But, like, the Kaepernicks and the Daltons and whatnot, like, their their stats basically translated exactly the same or with the same amount of reliability or unreliability as before. Wentz is the same way. Like, his, uh, what, adjusted yards per attempt, you can get that at – uh, sports reference as well. Like it, it basically went down by about two yards or so. And obviously that's, I mean, he's only got a two year sample, so maybe it ends up catching up even further. Um, but yeah, like it, it really translates strangely evenly, uh, from level to level. And I didn't expect that.
2: I'm curious, can I ask, and, and this is probably a question that Charles could answer. Charles, uh, has some, some line experience, I think, uh, how we would deal with that conversion for offensive and defensive linemen. I'm thinking specifically of, uh will hernandez from utep this year who who looks like a mauler and everyone thinks it's going to be a first round pick uh but for the most part uh was playing against you know while well, he was playing against terrible players yeah. um for the most part i, I think
1: when it comes to guys who played at you know schools like utep or even no one double a or d2 schools it's about like the it becomes more about okay what did you do against your best opponent and i think Uh, His game versus Oklahoma is on YouTube. And I mean, he's just he's kicking everybody's ass in that game. So uh, I think it it becomes about what did you do against your best opponent? What did you do in the all star circuit in terms of East West Strong game senior bowl? And he was dominant at the senior bowl, too. Uh, and then what you do with the combine? Uh so I think it and obviously, you know, he he killed the combine as well. So I think when you can check boxes like that, uh, you know, guys like Javon Hargrave did the same thing where uh Hargrave, he was a day three call-up. So for the last day of practice at the senior bowl, this is uh after Sheldon Rankins got hurt, they called him Javon Hargrave and he didn't have, you know, he didn't have a jersey number, he didn't have any stickers on his helmet, and he just kind of came up and uh, I remember the first rep he had was against, uh, who's that giant off of the from LSU a couple years ago? Oh, Vidal Alexander. He just yeah. drove him into the dirt. And then you kind of see him blow up the combine, blow up the senior bowl game. When you have guys who play at smaller schools, but they kind of consistently check off boxes, I think that makes you a little less worried about them. And with linemen, I think tape and combine metrics are the, probably the best way to go about uh, like scouting them.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably that goes uh, when you disappear when your internet went out for a second. We were talking a little bit. I was I was saying like I, I view the the combine should be the last piece of information, and it's that kind of information that you can check off. Like you can you can look at technique on film, but if you, you any lingering questions you've got, that's where you answer them. Uh, and and like you said, especially with linemen, that can become a very um, uh, very, uh, very telling piece of information because you don't have stats online, at least uh, not at the, at the just the pure play by play level. Uh, let's see our friend, uh, my friend, Justin Tempo Free Gridiron at TF Gridiron says, just as preseason rankings have been shown to be predictive of postseason outcomes in college basketball. Uh, to what extent do you think recruiting rankings are predictive of NFL success, especially when those rankings might conflict might conflict with college stats slash conventional wisdom? Um in terms of like pure quality, I highly doubt there's all that much of a correlation, but I I can almost guarantee there's a little bit of a correlation when it comes to your draft status. Uh, And and because you'll get, you'll get more mulligans if you were a four or five star guy, because if you were a four or five star guy, that means you were physically dominant or, or more physically impressive. And that's the same thing that the NFL looks for. So you'll get more chances. Blake Gabbard is still on a team. He was a five star quarterback. Um, I, I think just it, it, it hints at the physical traits you've got, and that would probably give you more opportunities to prove yourself. And maybe with more opportunities, maybe you eventually do prove yourself. But I, I, I think it's the correlation is with draft where you're drafted, not necessarily how you do.
2: And there's a whole constituency of people out there that every year you'll hear the stat come out. You know, there were only three, five stars drafted in, right. in this first round of this NFL draft. And there were... 23 stars and another, uh, nine, four stars. I think that's 32 unless my additions off, which is possible. Um, and they'll conveniently ignore that. There are like 33 or 34 or five stars in a given year, uh, and literally thousands <laughs> of three stars, in a given year. Uh, as if, as if there's not some kind of, uh, some kind of higher likelihood that a five star would get picked.
0: Yeah. No, it's 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 math. Yeah. The there's a very small number of of five star guys. Um and
1: it just that's the way it is. We're gonna have Uh, another interesting case with you, I always think it's interesting to see what five stars didn't make it in college per se. Not didn't make it but didn't really make an impact that you would expect based on their recruiting rankings, uh, that end up on NFL teams. I mean you see guys in UDFAs, like, if you just go back and look at some of their high school rankings, you'll see that they were rated pretty highly out of high school. And those are just kind of guys. The teams are going to roll the dice on, but uh, Andrew Brown from Virginia, he was a five-star defensive tackle when he came out and, you know, he had a pretty quiet college career. Uh, But I think he's going to be interesting to see, where do teams kind of value, I guess, that pedigree that they had in the past based on what they produced in college. And, you know, he had a good combine, so I think that should help him. But uh, he's going to be an interesting case for me to watch.
0: Yeah, and I have no problem if that's the way the system works. If if you if you're a top like five pick because more because of your your five-star recruiting ranking than your college production, that's a problem. But I mean that's one way to find inefficiencies later in the draft, I would think. If there's a guy who was a very good recruit but never quite put it together, well see if he puts it together with another year or two of development. Um uh Colin Hunter at Hunter Co. Uh, will quarterback hysteria ever end hypothetically if Allen flops and jackson is successful would that finally temper some of the crazy no
2: no 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 uh, yeah we're never gonna temper we're never gonna reach the point no. where crazy is
1: tempered i don't i don't think it'll ever be tempered until like millennials get into these front office roles where <laughs> you know you've been, you've been playing madden like your entire life and It's more. It's easier to to move the ball when you have a quarterback that can do things on the ground and through the air. Uh, I I just I don't see this quarterback hysteria ever ending until like you have guys like Bill Polian saying that Lamar Jackson he's he's too short to play receiver and he's like uh, he's barely he's almost six three so. You know, it's frustrating that people will just spread falsehoods to kind of push some agenda that I don't really understand the reason for. Like, I don't understand the reason for this agenda, like, to just keep pushing these tall quarterbacks into the NFL when we can see that you know, there's more than one way to play the position and more than one way to have success playing the position. Uh, I mean, even just look at the Eagles. You know, you had Wentz and Foles who stylistically are about as different as you can get, and they still were able to put up productive offenses with with both of them. So I don't think it's going to end as long as we have people who kind of look at the game backwards making these decisions. But, uh, yeah, I I would give it about 30 years, and if the NFL (laughs) is around 30 years, then, yeah, that's when the change is going to happen. I think it's interesting, though. Oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was gonna say the problem with that is uh, too is that these these uh, millennials that are gonna save the universe. Um, once you get into a position of power, uh, you end up almost being kind of enveloped by the same bubble. Uh, as everybody else and then you start to end up with the same blinders on as well so that's what we have to worry about not only do we need a new generation of people uh, to come in and evaluate these players then we need to make sure they're still they're maintaining the perspective that they had originally uh because that so you know no pressure millennials you got to save us and avoid any sort of biases along the way so have at it
2: yeah (laughs) and i think that it's funny and I, i agree completely with Charles, but. Uh, we've started to see, especially over the last couple of years, NFL teams be a lot cooler with drafting, you know, spread, even air raid quarterbacks. Um, you know, the, the closest thing the league has to a millennial GM and maybe he qualifies is I think Brett Veach with the chiefs, uh, who might be 33 or 34. He's, he's really young. Um, and I might have that age wrong, but, uh, you know, he just decided to trade Alex Smith and, and turn the keys over to Patrick Mahomes, who, uh, I think the the Chiefs GM, when they drafted him and they traded up to pick him high was John Dorsey, who's definitely not a millennial um but you know i wonder how far behind uh being more accepting of quarterbacks who do a ton of running is going to be um you know after we've seen these teams kind of start to be cooler about spread quarterbacks in general especially once you really throw it around a lot
0: yeah um Mahomes is Mahomes is a case a test case for me too because um, here's where I just realized, where I realized that heading into the draft I think everybody's overrated because I re- I loved Pat Mahomes and then he ends up uh, you know tenth or whatever and I got really nervous like oh, are you sure like are you sure Carson Wentz is, should be that high? like I I basically downplay everybody so um, hopefully I'm never running a team that has a top
2: five pick I guess no no that'd be good because oh, so I'm try. wrong I'm wrong too by the way about the VJ he's not that young oh.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. if you hadn't looked uh, it anyway. up, I, I, would, I would have gone with it. Um, all right. Uh, here's a, another uh, fun draft question. Then I've got a couple non draft ones to end with. Uh, Josh Brundage at Josh Brundage. Paul Johnson keeps having receivers drafted and looks like uh looks to have one ready to go in the middle rounds this year in Ricky June. Uh, what about the run first flex bone prepares them for the NFL compared to qu- more, quote, traditional offenses? I think basically he he recruits uh, big, lanky receivers who can go deep and, and uh, take advantage when defenses are distracted. And I wouldn't think that that would work very well. Um, that's a pretty limited skill set. But I will say that if you can go deep and if you can block, like receivers in Paul Johnson's spread option have to block – That's a pretty good starting point. Maybe you maybe especially if we're talking about a middle round guy, maybe you can convince yourself into, you know, I can teach this guy to run some more routes. We're not investing a ton of money. We're investing a fifth round pick in him. Uh, We can teach him to run some more routes. But if he can block like that, he can see the field. I do think that's probably the underrated part. We don't see a bunch of Navy receivers or Air Force or, or Georgia Southern or whoever also making the NFL. But that's probably. Uh, you get power conference experience, you're blocking power conference guys uh, and and you're doing it in a position that still requires blocking, even though, you know, because because teams do still run the ball for whatever reason. Um, it's a I think that's a very uh, that's one way to stand out in that offense.
1: And I, I think when you when you look at the guys that he, he's put in the NFL with the Demarius Thomas and Stephen Hill, you know, the failed experiment that Stephen Hill was, if, if all you can do is be big and fast and get open deep that's still a hell of a trick to have you know uh so <laughs> that that's uh you know i think we get caught up in this one trick pony talk uh but you know guys like martavis brian and deshaun jackson obviously they're higher caliber players and stephen hill is but you know for the most part that's how they're making their bread and if you can get open and get deep that's a that's a pretty big valuable skill set to have in an NFL offense, assuming the other pieces are around you.
2: And We're gonna have oh sorry no no you you're, you go this time. <laughs> We're gonna have, I think, a really interesting case next year, and this is somewhat tangential, but Jalen Robinette, who you guys will probably oh, remember yeah, yeah. from Air Force, oh, yeah. he was going to be a third or a fourth round pick last year, uh, and then the Trump administration changed course on a <laughs> a policy that the Obama administration had put in where you know players from army navy and air force could get you know a sort of waiver to play in the nfl right away uh so we had to wait two years uh i am looking forward uh presuming he is still in shape and that might be a bit you know in football shape and that might be a big guess to seeing another triple option receiver in the league next year how tall was he he wasn't six
0: five but he was like what six two six three i believe something i don't remember
1: was um, yeah he was just big and fast
0: yeah, uh, six three two twenty. Yeah, so that that'll play. Uh, and yeah, we're we're obviously talking about a small sample of guys here: Demarius Thomas, Thomas, and Stephen Hill. That was still one for two. Demarius Thomas was uh, you know had a couple hundred catch seasons had like let's see one two three four five thousand yard receiving seasons. Like if that seems again, if we're talking about Ricky June as a mid round guy, and not like a potential first rounder, that seems like a great. Uh, that, that's a good ratio right there. You'll take that ratio, uh, the one for two um all right so then we're gonna flip back over to not necessarily draft related stuff uh Shikar gupta at shikhar gupta 94. oh wait wait wait, wait.
1: Uh, i thought we were gonna talk about a i won't, i was interested to hear your little josh rosen spiel that we were talking about on twitter the other day
0: oh uh well well josh rosen i actually i haven't i haven't formal. actually no this is this is good i'd, I'd forgotten i always forget stuff um i actually want to open this up to you guys so when this quarterbacks piece that I've been hinting at goes up, it's going to show that Josh Allen's obviously at the ball uh, at the bottom, but it also has Josh Rosen near the bottom, which surprised me his um, let me pull those stats up again. See, this is why I need help. I, I never remember everything I want to talk about um, career success rate uh, for the, what is it? 13 or so primary prospects. He was 11th. He was at 46.6%. That's that's ahead of chase Litton, who, probably shouldn't have gone pro and uh, Josh Allen just behind Mike white at 47, four Lamar Jackson at 47, four Luke Falk at 48. but Luke Falk, that was 48% success rate with absolutely no explosiveness whatsoever because it's Mike Leach's offense. Uh, but Rosen had a very low success rate. He was throwing a lot of shorter passes and then he, uh, that, that, w- you know, would go for, you know, four yards on second and nine or whatever. And he was throwing a lot of, of risky passes downfield. Um, for, you know, so when I write this piece, obviously, Allen's going to be the biggest attention getter in, in terms of bad stats. But let's talk about red flags for Josh Rosen. What have you seen that maybe like they all have red flags, obviously. Sam Darnold passed the success rate test, but, you know, he has t- he, he has wee little hands who f- that fumble a lot, I guess. Um, and he doesn't mind throwing in the coverage. Baker Mayfield, obviously, it doesn't have the the prototype stature. Uh, but his his stats were absurd, and he probably learn needs to learn what it's like to play behind a bad offensive line because he hasn't really done that yet. Um, so there, sure, there are red flags for everybody, but Rosen in particular doesn't pass the statistical you know smell test or whatever. And I want you guys' opinion on why
2: that may be. Well, I think Rosen played, uh, and I'm kind of excusing Rosen in a way that I'm not Alan, and I I realize that might sound hypocritical, but hear me out. Uh, Rosen played with just an egregious running game, Uh, one of the most disgusting, (laughs) awful running games uh, that a power conference team has had in several years. Really, really bad, uh, and was hurt a lot. uh, And, you know, I think made ucla's offense better than it probably should have been um but i realized that i might be doing the thing that we were just talking about which is giving him a little more leash because he was a five-star recruit and i've just assumed oh he'll always get together um you know he does make some wild throws uh but yeah i probably shouldn't be as confident in in the guy as i am
1: well you know i I think what's interesting is I, i i don't know where this started but within like the draft like twitter sphere don't ever venture in the draft Twitter it's a dark dark place uh but I think maybe it was during the combine or maybe a little bit before the combine Rosen just became like everyone's unquestioned favorite quarterback in the draft and I remember that uh Steve Palazzolo uh at Pro Football Focus he had a a pretty good piece that was kind of saying you know Rosen's a little bit more volatile than you guys are going to give him credit for he's kind of on the Eli Jameis spectrum in terms of the type of quarterback that he is. Yeah. And people just killed him. Like, he, like this, I don't know how Rosen became the chosen one or, you know, this next QB savior, but I don't, I don't understand how he's magically out in front of all these guys in terms of, you know, like the online evaluators. It, it's kind of bizarre to me.
0: <laughs> and maybe that has something to do with his political leanings. Um, yeah, we do. We do tend to be a reasonably homogenous bunch in certain pockets of Twitter. But um, and that was funny too. Like as soon as it turns out, like he starts interviewing with teams, and they're all like, "Huh? So he's not a total asshole, huh?" <laughs> wow. Whereas you know, if you just if you read anything besides that one Instagram picture uh, that you know that one Instagram post, you, like his teammates to. Uh, a letter, we're talking about how much they liked him. And they—they they you could see, well, the Texas A&M game at the beginning of the year, like they were all fighting for him and with him. And he was out there, you know, that, that ridiculous comeback. And and like it, it was funny that that ended up, up becoming the narrative, not the fact that he's been injured a lot, uh, not the fact, which, I mean, a lot of people have, and it's fluky. Adrian Peterson was injured a lot in college too. That doesn't necessarily mean something, but it means more to me than you know he's he's a rich uh, a rich jerk or whatever the the other prevailing narrative was but to to go back to that A&M game i think that that spoke to everything good and scary about rosen to me uh, he ends up with uh, let's see 30 to 35 for 59 for 491 four touchdowns no interceptions 152 uh passer rating a yeah. uh, huge comeback lots of attention you watch that game and some of the throws he was making um like the, the positive spin would be that they
1: were confident throws. He he could have found like three or four picks in that game. Easy. Yes.
0: Yeah. And and they'll tell you, you know, you'll hear a lot that you know, interception rate in college, maybe that just shows that you're willing to make big throws. And he is. He's he's not scared of making big throws. Um, but no, there, there are a, little, a lot of little examples like that, that, um, you know, his first year, I thought he was, they set up a system that was probably smart. That was, was mostly safe for him. Lots of little, just curls, lots of easy throws that he can make in rhythm five, six yards downfield. Um, he ended up completing 60% of his passage, which, which as a true freshman is pretty good. Um, 2016, he was doing something pretty ridiculous when he got hurt um like 26 for 40 for 307 against BYU 18 for 27 for 248 against Stanford 20 for 37 for 350 against Arizona 24 for 43 for 400 against Arizona State and Arizona State's defense was egregiously awful that year but um I mean he was not necessarily a high percentage uh completion rate but lots of downfield lots of aggressive throws and that was when he that was when UCLA's run game was at its absolute worst um, and aside from throwing, uh, three picks at A&M in a game that he still engineered to come back in and almost won, uh, I was, I was very impressed with where he seemed to be going. Uh, and then this year was kind of the same story. He was, he was up and down Had some really bad, like Arizona, random three pick game against Arizona and nobody should throw three picks against Arizona. Um, but then he ends up with like 63% completion rate, nearly 150 pass rating. He kind of passed my test, but the success rate thing is interesting that, 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 um, that d- dumps him down a little bit, and I can't necessarily—I don't think I can completely explain why. I mean, I might need Ian Boyd to jump in and do like a film analysis piece on him.
2: It feels like we focused a lot more on Deshaun Watson throwing picks last year yeah. than we focused hmm. on it with Darnold throws this year. Yeah, because <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: well, yeah, the, the Darnold turnover thing was funny because he 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 led the nation in turnovers uh, this past season, and I think by three quarters way through the season. He had more turnovers uh, than Deshaun Watson had all of his junior season, but you only hear turnovers talked about an issue through as with one of them, which is kind of interesting. And I also think it's funny that we talk like you hear some people talk about Lamar Jackson. as like this turnover machine too. And he, you know, up until that bowl game versus Mississippi state, where all kind of fell apart. He only had six interceptions on the season. Then he threw four in the bowl game. So, he almost matched the season total in one game, which is like that kind of looks more like an outlier than the, the what you're actually going to get with him. But, you know, we I mean, we could talk about media bias and coverage for like four hours about this stuff. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Darnold at the beginning of the season was scaring the hell out of me this year. He had six picks in his first three games. I was like, Oh, that's probably not an issue. Probably not. Damn, Josh, or damn, Sam, stop throwing picks. And then he did. Um, he had like what, nine in the first six games and then only four thereafter. So he started to get somewhere, but yeah, it was definitely a much bigger deal with Deshaun Watson who only went, what did he go? 12th, 11th, 12th, 12th. 13th, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, and Darnold's might go quite, will go quite a bit higher than that. Um, Yeah, I, I, I am intentionally joining in the quarterback draft conversation, even though it really is just the most frustrating conversation that we have uh, in the exact same terms with just different names every single year, uh, in perpetuity. Uh, all right. So now we're going to, we're going to do one thing. Like this guy sent us a, a double tweet question. Uh, and, and so I wanted to get to it because it, um, well, it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, I already know the answer, but it's interesting. Uh, so again, uh, Shikar Gupta at Shikar Gupta 94. Will it pack 12? potentially get left out as a power conference. Once the current CFP contract is up, if it stays intact, similarly, is it likely that the conference implodes at that point? And if so, how do you see the member schools realigning? I say that this was a a double tweet. Uh, I say that with the context of lackluster showings in the revenue sports, a lack of emphasis by member schools on revenue sports due to the focus on academics uh, and a desire to just be good enough at sports in general, including non-revenue and a flailing TV deal. Yeah. So PAC 12 has a lot going against it at the moment. Um, they took exactly the kind of risk that we love writing about when it came to the way they went about putting their PAC 12 network together. Uh, and the, the kind of the, they were holding out for good deals in this way or that way. Uh, and then now they're on like a third of televisions in the country at most and, uh, football Pac-12? is a TV channel. Uh, so uh, allegedly I, they don't have it in mid Missouri. That's for damn sure. But I keep hearing about it anyway. Um, and so you know, football has has been lackluster for a couple of years, and, and part of that can just be, you know, Oregon took a step back. That was a big thing. Uh, UCLA took a, was starting to really be on the project trajectory we all think they should be on, and then they trailed off dramatically over the last two years especially. Um, and so the, it doesn't have to be any sort of overriding narrative. It could just be a couple of the big schools weren't as big anymore. But regardless, they are really having a bad couple of years. And after a good Pac-12 basketball season last year, this season was horrific, an absolute nightmare. Uh, And so, yeah, you start to wonder about – we know that timing matters when it comes to a lot of the TV stuff, a lot of the realignment stuff. And you do wonder here over the next five years or so, is USC – he's a USC fan. Um, Well, at least judging by his his, – uh, the the picture on his twitter account here um you do wonder if usc is going to start to get antsy at some point knowing that the clock is ticking uh knowing that the tv deals sit, uh, are coming up knowing that um here in a few years when the big 12 grant of right ride, rights expires and yeah, we're opening exactly. up the door to a, a big round of realignment you wonder it's all usc to me that's that's you the pac-12 with a usc uh, even if they're never quite as good as we think they should be, is always going to be a power conference. But uh, they could get antsy, and that could uh, make a whole hell of a lot of other people antsy.
2: I think the only thing that could happen, and, and you know, like you said, the, the PAC-12, or at least its nuclear schools, are always going to be considered power schools, is if when the Big 12 grant expires, which is uh, June 30th, 2025, uh you know that granted right expires suddenly big 12 teams aka texas and oklahoma you know who run that league in the same way that usc uh, would be important to the pac-12 but they're probably even more powerful uh if they decided to start browsing i think you could theoretically see the good pac-12 programs and the good big 12 programs get together and maybe then suddenly oregon state and kansas would be in a conference together as well somewhere else um I'm just daydreaming right now, but uh, all, of it's, all of it kind of seems far-fetched to me because I, I don't know that college sports are ever going to just be like, all right, we're doing without a Western conference that's that's a power conference because then what's ESPN going to put on TV at Esports.
1: Know, <laughs> 2 o'clock in the morning on a, on a, on a Sunday? Yeah, I, I don't true, really have any true. real takes about this, but I, I can't see a world where USC, UCLA are in the Pac-12 and the Pac-12 is not a Power 5 conference. Uh, just doesn't make sense to me
0: yeah i i do like that the big 12 is kind of sniffing out a lifeline here like oh hey they might fall apart before we do and then we can survive um but yeah i i First of all, this is at least partially cyclical. Again, UCLA and and Oregon fell off around the same time. Plus, Arizona and Arizona State, who had things going up very quickly in like 2013-14, collapsed entirely in 2016 and only somewhat rebounded last year. So a lot of it is just make good hires, and this will rectify itself, um, Herm Edwards aside. But... Um I, and then and the basketball stuff really they, they were just fine last year the the involvement in the fbi investigation they 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 had a decent decent representation in that but that was probably bad luck as much as anything just in general i feel bad because uh, larry scott really did do everything we dreamed of a commissioner doing in terms of risks and and bold moves and all this stuff and we loved writing about it what's seven eight years ago uh and so i feel i i don't want to just, just turn the firing squad around and say you suck. Your you, your ideas were stupid when we when we loved them when they happened, but they've made some missteps obviously. And and I don't really know, I don't really know the best way out of their current issues other than just c- closing your eyes and hoping that uh, USC catches fire and UCLA catches fire with Chip Kelly and Oregon comes back and basketball comes back and everything's great. Um, close your eyes and hope isn't necessarily a good strategy. So I'm not real sure what they what they do as those tv uh, uh expiration dates start to approach but these things could change quickly yes and and they'll change four more times between now and when we actually when when they're actually having to negotiate uh new ideas yeah. they'll change a bunch so all right well i have kept you guys long enough i do uh, very much appreciate alex Kirshner and charles mcdonald coming on um we didn't talk about sloan by the way Oh, and um, Charles I, nerd, I just all those nerds
1: I just, infected my cool.
0: That's right. Charles Charles was invited to Sloan to basically talk about breaking down film to a bunch of nerds. Uh and it was it made me so happy. <laughs> how did that go? In your mind, how did that go by the way? Like how, what what kind of response did you get from
1: that? Oh, I mean, the response afterwards was overwhelming because during it the the damn clicker wasn't it, it was it was like <laughs> spazzing back and forth between the slides. And uh, I remember I looked over at the tech guy uh because he was telling me how to use it before. And he, I looked over him, like, at, at, during my presentation, he just gave me, like, a huge shoulder shrug. Like, I don't know what's going on. So, uh, <laughs> but outside of that, I, I, I powered through. Uh, I had a line of people waiting to talk to me afterwards. Uh, there were people at the combine who were talking to me about it. Uh, you know, people in the NFL, college football. So, it, it was a really great opportunity. I got to make a lot of good contacts and meet a lot of new people from it. So, you know, only good things about it. Yeah,
0: I um, one of the big things Charles does that I really enjoy is it breaks things down very clearly in terms of number of guys, a number of defenders in the box, um, and how teams run – just generally, but then specific teams as well, like how you run against uh, a team, a a defense with five in the box versus six versus seven versus eight, there's a dramatic difference. And you start to, it starts to get you down that, take your eyes off the ball road of, you know, just count the defenders here and there. You can see what offenses are going to do, what they should do. Um, And, and I I really enjoy breaking, not only because it involves numbers, although that helps, um, but it's, it's, I think, um, it's it's a more of a revelatory idea than it probably should be. Yeah, I agree. But it's still it's it's a it's an enlightening thing and I I, I enjoyed it. And you and you were sweating way less than
1: I was. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wasn't nervous. I was I wasn't nervous. I don't know why, but public speaking doesn't make me nervous at all. I was just like, All right, why isn't this Quaker working? But
0: No, uh, like i I think I'm I, I at this point I think like the public speaking thing I do okay with it, but like yeah, when something's not functioning as it should be, um like, uh, 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 but you did it. You did a solid job. You maintained your, your poise, your, your poise was solid. And uh, my
1: pocket presence was okay. That's that's right. You had great <laughs> pocket presence.
0: Anyway. All right. Uh, for Alex Kirchner, for Charles McDonald, I do appreciate it. Uh, as far as I know, Godfrey will be back next week. Uh, but we'll see. If not, then you know who's who's next on the list. I'll have to we'll, we'll figure something out. We might have a couple more people on if, if he's not available. Uh, you can find Alex Kirshner at alex underscore kirshner k i r s h n e r on Twitter. Uh, Charles, you can find at four verts. Uh, you can find me at sbn underscore bill c on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I will talk to you guys next week. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I promise you, you, we will go back to you know hardcore Mac talk next week. I thought this was a good change of pace myself.